This is Abby Martin. This is a disclaimer to say that psychedelic drugs do not universally work the same for everybody. They can cause psychosis at high enough doses, and they can be life-changing in ways that are not always intended or desired. Psychedelics should be used responsibly and with extreme caution. You become aware of yourself as, as a, a glowing thread in, in a tapestry, and all those, you know, cliches. Uh, but they, the, the cliches are based on real experience and real feeling, and real sensations. And they don't mean anything unless you, uh, un unless they have uh, an influence on what you do with your life. Welcome back to Media Roots Radio, our ongoing series on psychedelics, preliminarily titled Media Roots Radio on Psychedelics. <laughs> we never actually came up with the title for our series, so we're, we're going to go with that for now, which is fine. But we are now up to our fifth installment of this ongoing series, and we still have at least a couple more installments in the chamber. So I don't know, how do you feel about it, Abby? I mean, we already kind of commented on the feedback we got. It seems like there's been a lot of people this has really clicked with. Um, we've, we even got some interesting feedback last night where a lot of people were, I think, understandably turned off to psychedelics as a whole. Seem, it seemed like a lot of people who didn't really try them or experiment with them before were just enormously turned off by the CIA association with LSD. <laughs> Um, trying to separate that in their mind. So I think we've brought up a lot of interesting points that people have had time to chew over. Um, and we're going to bring up a lot more stuff in this. And I, I'm actually, in a lot of ways, really excited about this episode in particular because I feel like this might be some history that's actually the most obscure that we're going to tell um, the, about basically the drug war and I, a, a story that I don't think anybody really knows about. Yeah, I mean, I've had a really great time doing these episodes. It's been a really nice break from uh, the rigor morale of, like, the horrifying stuff that's happening globally and lately domestically. Uh, so it's been a nice kind of break mentally. And it was really cool to do Dosed with you last night, Robbie. For our listeners who haven't heard my new podcast, Dosed, on the Colin app, you can listen to it on all podcast platforms. But Robbie and I just did kind of like a crash course in the series so far with the hook of the CIA and LSD covering a lot of different territory and also some of the same territory. And it was cool to hear from you guys, um, you know, some Media Roots Radio followers and listeners. And it was just really interesting. Yeah, a lot of a lot of interesting analyses and feedback. You know, one guy who like had some insight on the Israeli presence and like the trance scene and, and raver scene that tied to the Israeli art student stuff that we talked about with Dance Safe. Other people had some interesting critiques just about what is the left's role in being like responsible and the intent behind using psychedelics. And like you said, some people were just turned off completely to the idea of how much the CIA had facilitated this. I think it's important, as you mentioned in the podcast, that regardless of what the CIA did or did not do, um, these substances would have been introduced into our society anyway. 
And so I think it's okay to separate the bizarre and sordid history, the dark, sinister legacy of how the CIA, you know, used these to experiment upon the masses and be realistic about the harm and the good that they can cause. So I'm excited about today's episode. I'm excited about continuing this series and going into some different territories, especially talking about um, Alexander Shulgin and the substances that I feel like a lot more people are familiar with, you know, people who are more worried or wary rather of taking like full-blown psychedelics probably have had more experiences taking things like MDMA or that just seems more commonplace or something like ecstasy. So it's, it's going to be interesting to tie all of this together and then subsequently explore more of like where, where this is all going in the future um, in terms of the post-prohibition era that we're entering into. So let's give it a go. Yeah, man. I mean, there's, there's just so many more things uh, left to say about this subject, but I guess just picking up from where we left off on the last episode, um, I'll just start with my my personal uh, story in all of this, which is that I ended the last episode talking about how I had zero chemistry experience, couldn't find you know DMT anywhere, even though I had already gotten to try it, uh, luckily by someone who traveled into town. Um, it was still impossible to find. In fact, uh, no one, you know, even these connections I had established at the Friday night dinners, all these people I'd met, um, that was not an open channel to me to get access to these substances. Um, that was my initial hope. It didn't pan out. So I was on this search, you know, um, how to make DMT, right? And there was this fact that I mentioned on the last episode by a mysterious individual named Quantum Tantra that made a beautifully illustrated fact with diagrams with photos of him extracting DMT into a beautiful you know crystalline final product um, and this fact seemed game-changing for me because it was the first thing I saw which was like oh this actually seems like I could really do this you know as opposed to what was out there before which was mostly just text um, didn't you know a lot of people had tried it and basically would say on the forum didn't work you know, is there anything, is there even any DMT in this Phalaris grass? You know, and people would argue all the time about like, where do we get Phalaris grass? <laughs> it was for a long time, it was sort of almost like the conventional wisdom of that was the DMT containing plant. Like almost kind of this weed looking grass that grew, I think even it grows naturally in parts of North America, um, but it had an extremely low concentration of DMT. And for some reason, this was like the focused on plant material to use and I think it just got to a certain point where like everybody was like look man this Phalaris grass situation is really shitty there's like no <laughs> there is no good Phalaris grass out there or like it's just not worth your time like unless you're like an expert chemist your yield is going to be so low you might as well not even do it so is it I've heard like that DMT is naturally occurring not just in that type of grass but like a lot of other types of things oh yeah um, but so what what was it about this grass that was so appealing in terms of like m making it because it was like more readily available I think it, I think that was the idea that it was supposed to be more readily available they were like it was like at the time it was almost the the, the philosophy was sort of molded more around what do you do if there's nobody no suppliers out there to actually like 
facilitate these, you know, to help you do these drugs. Well, you go to places like a nursery that has no idea that Phalaris grass has DMT in it <laughs> or that San Pedro has mescaline in it, and then you just buy them from there. And so that was the mindset, I, I feel like, throughout most of the 90s. It wasn't until, like, the late 90s and early 2000s where there started to be, like, you know, a place called, like, Herbal Shaman or, like... Um, you know, ethno, ethnogen botanicals, like websites that were mostly in Europe, actually. Um, some of them were in the United States that would just straight up supply only herbal plants that were usable in these sort of extraction processes. And once those stores started popping up, uh, it became common to carry something called Mimosa hostilis. And all of a sudden, it's sort of the whole DMT community, you know, people interested in making DMT turn towards this plant where it's like, actually, this has the highest concentration of DMT of all the plants that are out there. Like, why would we be fucking around with Phalaris grass when we could just get this? It was impossible to find Mimosa hostilis at a nursery, almost virtually impossible in the U.S. So there were people in Europe and other places that would basically, they would must have grown it themselves and they would just shell like ground up root bark, like powder of it, almost like it would look like incense, you know, it would come in the mail. Mm -hmm. And that was basically how I got my starting point um, with trying to, you know, extract, uh, extract DMT. Um, when, what year was this when you bought this? I want to say this might have been in like 2000. Uh -huh. And, you know, I should start by saying that we should jump back to this because this is something that we didn't get a chance to cover in our previous episodes, which this major, major dent um, happened in the psychedelic marketplace um, in the late 90s. So in the late 1990s, um, one of the most famous LSD lab raids took place uh, in the United States or really anywhere in the world. And this was a lab uh, that was a former U.S. government nuclear missile silo called the Atlas E Missile Silo, right outside of a small town in Warnego, Kansas. Um, this guy named Leonard Picard, uh, otherwise known as William Picard, he had already been arrested in the 80s for manufacturing LSD. Um, he knew Nicholas Sands. He was already really deep into you know, the drug manufacturing scene. He already served, I think he served a little bit of jail time uh, based on his first arrest. But after he got out of jail, he actually became instrumental in the biggest, one of the biggest LSD production facilities in the United States. And while he was doing this, this uh, missile silo LSD lab became like a popular hangout spot. Some of the people in it wanted to throw raves and apparently they did throw raves at times like in an adjacent facility to where the lab equipment was. But allegedly they weren't even, the, people say they weren't even actually manufacturing LSD in this location specifically, that it was just like where they would store some of their manufacturing supplies. It's not really clear to me, but, but eventually this place gets raided by the DEA and Part of the reason apparently it gets raided, at least the official story as it came out initially, was that they had a rave there. Someone put on a rave. 
someone overdosed from heroin or fentanyl, it's not clear, at the rave. And that basically created the cascading effect of the police eventually nabbing William Picard, trying to transport or move some of his um, materials to another lab. But when you dig deeper into the story, it gets really surreal because, you know, we've been talking about this concept of informants, the government's involvement with, you know, distributing psychedelics or just being really inside those black market circles with informants or with agents. Well, it turns out there was a DEA informant long term, um, very long term, deep cover <laughs> DEA informant who was working directly with William Picard at this facility. His name was Gordon Todd Skinner. He was basically partly responsible for bringing down Picard and the operation. I mean, when I say partly responsible, um, you know, that's putting it mildly. And it's very actually surreal to look at the timeline of activities Gordon's Todd Skinner was involved in as an informant. Um, if you look at this timeline, it's, I think it was actually put on by some advocacy group for uh, Leonard Picard. It's kind of trying to show how evil this guy Gordon Skinner was. Um, and it's fascinating just to see what things he was involved in. In 1997, he provided an individual with a near lethal dose of fentanyl oh um, at the missile base. Um, he begins Whoa. a relationship with a 17-year-old Kansas girl when he's well out of his teenage years. I think he was already in his 40s near the missile base around the same time. Um, this is while working as a DA informant. He's basically, you know, doing statutory rape. He even appeared in Santa Fe, New Mexico and infiltrated ayahuasca ceremonies, this uh, timeline claims, during a period uh, where ayahuasca tourism was under investigation by the New Mexico's U.S. Attorney's Office. He also provided LSD blotters to a babysitter, I guess, who was also underage um, at some point during when he was working as an informant. He appeared at the Ethnogen Conference in San Francisco and develops relationships in the psychedelic research community by offering grants for research from fictitious businesses and foundations. So this is actually before he met Picard. So this is like leading up to him becoming uh, the informant. You know, it's that, crazy that, that this guy this just was able to do all of this crazy criminal activity. Meanwhile, just like taking probably wild amounts of drugs at the same time. I mean, informants to me are just some of the creepiest people in the world. Like the fact that you can actually be undercover having this double life and ratting out all these people that trust you, like having full-blown relationships with people. It's so creepy. These people are complete sociopaths. And it's so scary that he was almost like trying to facilitate some guy having an OD. I like, mean, it just gets really it, fucked. It gets worse and worse. I mean, it seems like he was facilitating, like one of the things that seemed to be a big part of this that I didn't even know about is he like facilitated like a huge quantity of MDMA pills for somebody and like had them sent to the base and stuff. I mean, the, so these things seem like they're just all attempts to attract attention and i don't really know what the actual story is or what the people who advocate for picard believe about this guy but it's very fucking crazy to think that you yeah you would be like an lsd chemist and allow someone like this you know mm -hmm. in your inner circle um so i could see why people you know have traditionally always been very paranoid and always worried that you know agents might be in the mix even at these friday night dinners so um and this, you know, this kind of happened 
I remember when I started going to the Friday night dinners, uh, this incident happened and it was it was kind of the talk of the town. People were and people seem to have very mixed feelings about it because I think at the time they didn't know, you know, what was true and what wasn't. Some people maybe even thought Picard was attracting too much attention. I think even just the fact that they had parties at the location was like enough. Yeah, that's pretty reckless. So we're talking about like, what, 200,000 doses. That's a lot right? That's a lot of doses. Is this partly why it's so diluted of a supply today? Like, I guess I'm confused why it's so difficult to make LSD and why this was, um, why this had such a profound effect on like the supply moving forward. That's a really, really good question. And, you know, there is a precursor to LSD called ergotamine that you can, you can buy from like chemical supply manufacturers. There's also something called indole, that people use as a precursor for LSD. As far as I know, those weren't like all of a sudden unavailable to people. You know, they had always been, like traditionally those kinds of chemicals had always been watched by the DEA. If you buy them and you're just like not making LSD, you're doing something else as a chemist, you still apparently get on a watch list. This has already, this has been the understanding of people involved in this for a long time. So it's sort of like, you know, you kind of have to figure out stealth ways or alternate explanations for why you're buying this stuff and they almost have like a cover story for why as you're buying it. Mm -hmm. Even though it's technically legal to buy large quantity of ergotamine. Um, you know, we'll go into ecstasy manufacturing a little bit later, but like safrole oil, which is something that if you said that to somebody, they'd be like, oh, that's not a drug. That's like an innocuous, you know, that's like an essential oil. Well, in fact, the DEA is very stringent in watching anybody, any essential oil manufacturer or distributor that sells saffron oils in, you know, larger than normal quantities is watched and monitored because they are suspected of being potentially like a, a vehicle to give people the precursor to make MDMA. So oh, there's, wow. Yeah, so the... So to answer your question, I don't know, but I do know that most people who I brought this up to and just anecdotally, and you even go to Wikipedia, it sort of says it there too, that this raid caused a significant uh, like void in the marketplace for the availability of LSD. Like all of a sudden there was what people call an LSD drought in the United States. I don't know if it affected the rest of the world, but for a good amount of time, I would say for at least five to six years, if you could get LSD, it was, it did seem very weak in comparison to what had come before it. And now things have sort of come back around where it does seem like there must be other chemists out there making stronger, you know, batches again that aren't diluting it as much. Um, but I think that pro I mean, I would guess that probably explains to some extent why a lot of the LSD that was around after this did seem fairly weak. And it was just very hard to find in general. I mean, they were probably, um, what's it called? Yeah, they're probably literally diluting the supply. You know, whoever had any left. But I don't know why other chemists didn't pop up. I don't right, know well, what why. Is, what else is ergotamine used for? I think that it, the only other thing I could think of that it's used for is that there are like derivatives of it that are used for like Alzheimer's medication and pharmaceutical companies are still playing around with it to mm. try to make drugs from. Other than that, I have no idea. But everything has, you know, everything has some other use. There's probably something out there. 
Um, I mean, for example, one of the chemicals you use in LSD manufacturing was helium. You know, you had lots of helium tanks that they were used for like children's balloons. Um, <laughs> not a very good cover story, but that's the kind of thing someone would try to do, you know, to be like, what else is helium used for? You know, um, so what else is ergotamine used for? That's going to be something that someone, a listener is going to have to answer. I am not sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, what he, he went to prison, right? Several years. He went to prison for a very long time. He got out. Oh my God. I mean, he was in prison, I think up until 2020. So what? he has been serving a prison sentence. Jeez, I want to say almost 18 years, maybe longer. Oh my God. So, yeah, he kind of gained a reputation for, you know, being being a good guy and being sort of like, at first, I, I my impression was that a lot of people in the psychedelic community weren't sure what to think about him. I, I think he had connections to a lot of these people. Um, there was some personal beef here and there, but and eventually he sort of came out as like being a her, more heroic noble figure in the end but this other guy i think eventually took most of the heat this informant gordon skinner i wonder what happened to him you know good question i i haven't really looked into exactly what happened to him but there was a if anybody wants to know more about the story it's actually one of the only good vice documentaries that i would actually recommend to people about this Todd was so secretive about everything. A couple of weeks before the bust happened, he gave me some MDMA and said, go on the bedroom and trip and leave me alone, don't come out here. So I was like pretty high and yet come out there and I'm like, what are you doing? I'm bored, you know? And so then I got to see all this stuff, you know, he had pictures of Leonard and you know, all of this stuff about Leonard, like this huge file on him, you know? Looking back on it, I should have known something was getting ready to come down when he had the, all that stuff out because then I could have said, Leonard, you gotta watch out. Wamigo residents say they were shocked when DEA agents arrived into town on November 6th looking for drug fugitives. In October 2000, Todd formally contacted the DEA and declared that he would like to turn in the world's largest LSD manufacturing conspiracy. And it goes into detail about how um, people were, uh, there There was some crazy shit that went down where so one of the guys involved, I want to say it was the informant, but I'm not absolutely sure, actually like kidnapped someone and tortured them with psychedelic drugs, which is really disturbing, but that, that kind of stuff went down, it gets dark. There's a lot of crazy threads to it um, that, that, you know, you could make it to a pretty fucked up film if you wanted to. And, you know, this is also kind of around the same time where the party monster incident happened in New York, where... You know, a rave promoter uh, who was heavily involved in dealing ecstasy and stuff decided to kill a rival in the scene and dispose of his body. And there was actually a movie made about this with uh, Macaulay Culkin and Seth Green, I believe. Mm -hmm. And Macaulay Culkin played the murder. And that guy was like a club kid, raver kid. He was like actually one of the at the top of the pyramid, like in the New York rave scene for a, a good while. Like so when he got arrested everybody's like oh my god this is like the main guy <laughs> like he murdered someone you know while there was a lot of good things probably about the rave scene and and the psychedelic drug community there was also this dark side to it that was coming out in all these different ways it's just kind of crazy that this guy was that irresponsible it's like you think that you'd be a little bit more tight-lipped i mean it seems like this dea informant was like a little bit nuts Oh my God! You know, yeah. Even if you didn't know about his past, it's like, dude, what the hell were you doing? Like letting this guy do this at the facility? You know, it's just kind of nuts. It um, is kind of nuts. And even I had even previously arrested for LSD, and and then continuing to do it and right. to open yourself up to this seems very surprising and shocking. But 
I wasn't there. I don't know exactly what went down. I just know that I'm a more paranoid person than most people. And like, if someone gives me a red flag and they're trying to get close to me, like I, I don't let them, you know, it's just like, it's my default response. So I don't know if other people behave that way, but I think if you're involved in make manufacturing illegal drugs, you probably should be <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, anybody trying up. to get close Jesus. to you could be a fed. You should just right. assume that. Yeah. You got to keep your defenses up, man. Talk about how you took the powder that you bought online and then actually started trying to make DMT yourself. Okay. So, so back to the, back to the story. I mean, so I, you know, I remember when I, when I read this fact, I got really excited. I finally found, and I remember I found a website called Herbal Shaman. Um, sounds like a really corny name, but that, you know, that was pretty the norm back then. You know, the coolest stores sometimes had the corniest psychedelic names. And I thought that this was a legitimate supplier because it was the first time I had, I bought salvia extract from this store, you know, months earlier. Um, and it was, it was extremely powerful. It was probably my most powerful psychedelic experience before trying DMT. So I just assumed that their material was good. So, um, you know, I basically wasted hundreds of dollars, spent multiple weeks doing disgusting amateur kitchen chemistry. My roommates were horrified. I couldn't have any adults come over, you know, I couldn't have like mom <laughs> visit. I mean, there were like weeks on end where I literally had like, you know, hot plates out, bottles of, you know, basically like household chemicals out on the countertop, muriatic acid, lye, um, naphtha. And these things are all the purest forms of some of these chemicals you could get in the store. So for example, lye, you get it in the form of red devil lye, which is like the most like old school form of drain cleaner. It's got like a skull on the cover. So if you spill lye and you touch it, you get it wet, you can't wash it off your body. It'll burn like it activates with water. So it's these things I was dumb. I didn't realize, you know, like I spilled Lyle over my carpet. One of my roommates stepped in it and gets like a chemical burn. I'm just like, I don't fucking know what I'm doing, but I'm here trying to make DMT in my kitchen. And, you know, after just wasting all this time and money um, and, you know, hurting myself a few times, um, buying, you know, sterilized glass jars. I even brought, I, I think the only piece of actual chemistry equipment I bought was what's called a separatory funnel. For people who don't know what that is, it's like a big bulbous, um, like glass thing that looks almost like a sphere at the top that comes down into a little nozzle at the bottom. So it's supposed to be a way to like filter things out, like from the bottom of a mixture. And so all these things, I thought I was doing everything right. And then, you know, at, at the end of all of it, I'm sitting there, you know, with my little evaporating tray, the final product waiting, hoping to see these DMT crystals forming when all this stuff evaporates. And it just evaporated into just poof, nothing. Like the, the plate <laughs> I had out, you know, waiting all day, it just was, nothing was there. And I was just like, oh my God, like, I thought I, you know, I, I thought I was doing everything right. The colors looked right. The pH looked right, according to the fact. And in the end, I remember posting online and being like, hey, did all this. I did this. What, what did I do wrong? And somebody was like, what did your mimosa hostilis look like? You know, and I was like, oh, well, it looked like this. You know, it looked kind of like brown, kind of tan, uh, fine powder. And they were like, yeah, that's your problem. It's supposed to look like bright purple or pink. That's Whoa. like the indication that it's not only is it fresh, but it's high in DMT content. And that it basically indicates that you got like an extremely bad quality batch. 
of it. So I was like, okay, this is more complicated than I realized. I don't know if I have the patience to fucking do this again. You know, I just failed and spent all this time. So I was like, what are the DMT alternatives out there on the legal market? You know, I wasn't ready to do ayahuasca yet. That seemed way too intense for me. Um, I only wanted to try to do something that was like a smokable DMT-like drug. So I couldn't get it. But what I found was at the, at the time, there were available online in pure chemical form actual DMT alternatives. And, you know, not knowing much about chemistry or pharmacology, you know, at the time I thought, well, these drugs must be just like DMT or they're like almost exactly like DMT. Why aren't more people doing them? And those drugs were one drug called 5-MeO-DMT and another one called DPT, which was dipropyltryptamine. Um, 5-MeO-DMT and DPT were both being sold, surprisingly, by online domestic U.S. retailers in pure chemical form, smokable freebase form. I mean, it wasn't just you would buy a drug of pure powder and then you'd have to do like a baking soda freebase thing to convert it to smokable. It was already smokable. So you would, like, I literally bought 5-MeO-DMT, DPT, um, you know, and so at the time, like, I remember as I delved into doing more research on it, it was like, oh, actually 5-MeO-DMT is like the, one of the most intense psychedelics that's actually nobody really enjoys. And they and everybody who's like, yeah, I tried 5-MeO-DMT thinking it was going to be like DMT. And instead of getting a kaleidoscope, I literally just had like a full whiteout and like everything <laughs> disappeared. Really? Wait, yeah. what is the difference? I, I guess I'm confused. The difference is it's just a completely different drug. It has oh, wow. a DMT in the chain of the molecule, but it's... I guess it's so the effects or the hits the receptor so differently that even though it has the same blast off like instant intensity, it's not colorful. You almost just like disappear. It's a and I I've oh done five meo DMT before, but I never did the blast off dose. And all I can describe it as is it feels like when things are melting on psychedelics, but it feels like everything's melting away and leaving like blankness in the behind it. It's a very strange thing people i can't believe that you were like the the asshole kid that all these people were like like shulgin was just like we don't want people to just like try this at home and become their own <laughs> like Guinea like pig. try to be scientists themselves and like i cannot believe you having no history or anything in chemistry it was like mixing together like crazy chemicals that could have like blown the house up or like burned you like giving you like chemical burns that that would permanently scar you. I'm stunned. Well, absolutely I will, stunned. I will say for my own self, I if there was anything like actually flammable that was involved, I probably would have been too afraid to. Um, luckily, I wasn't stupid enough to do anything like that. Uh, the stupidest thing I did was probably spilling lye on my carpet, and then thinking that like water, you know, would help when in reality it's actually like can burn you worse. So that was dumb. But yeah, no, it is crazy to think that the internet and this fact and this forum enabled me to start doing this on my own. Um, you know, and the fact was filled with warnings. Everybody was like, don't do this if you don't know what you're doing. But I still did it. And I'm sure a lot mm -hmm. of people also did it. Um, but, you know, 5-MeO-DMT was it's actually far more potent than DMT. You only have to smoke around 5 to 10 milligrams of it to have the equivalent to a 50 to 60 milligram trip of DMT, which is a blast-off dose. So 
this was like sort of notorious like man this will really test your metal like you got to be like made of stern stuff to fucking do this shit and like i remember buying some and just being like completely afraid to ever like actually do it for real i was just like why did i even buy this you know i but i, I was able to buy it uh tried smoking some of it um finally when i got around to smoking dpt that was more in my opinion closer to dmt where it was like it, it didn't blast you off where you go to like a completely other world but it was a similar like kaleidoscope instant effects um and it actually even lasted longer than dmt even sometimes in, in like it would last as long as like a half hour um oh, wow. but i personally really enjoyed dpt and i thought maybe you know maybe if i don't can't find dmt or can't make it this will be like my psychedelic of choice it's only lasts a maximum of two hours full come down um you can you can also snort it you can take it in a pill it felt to me like something that was like why aren't more people doing this and i remember you know i kind of bought a bunch of it online as much as i could to sort of hold on to it because i personally really liked it but I still, I think I still had this ego about being like, I want to show other people DMT. You know, it wasn't just ego, it was more like, I want to share this experience with other people too, because it's such a unique experience compared to these other drugs that I was still determined to figure out a way to get more real, you know, DMT. You know, I still wasn't ready to try to make it. I didn't have the patience again to do it. So I remember I eventually moved on to this other drug that was really being talked about a lot on the forums at the time called 2CT7. And it was a drug that people would describe on this forum as having like some of the most intense visual, you know, visuals or hallucinations you could get on a psychedelic. And, you know, I remember being like, okay, that's kind of sounds like more my speed. I'm, I'm less interested in this sort of introspective stuff and more interested in just like the trippy crazy visuals and the hallucination so you know at, at the same time i remember reading this there was also some incredible horror stories in the form of trip reports online about this drug um the drug wasn't just taken orally it was also snortable and for people who had snorted it had incredibly variable effects sometimes very scary effects um for example one of the more normal effects from snorting 2CT7 is people would instantly get an, a very searing, piercing pain, incredibly sharp pain in their nose, followed by a, a bloody nose. Sometimes in the, like, a, like an actual like running bloody nose. And imagine you know, instantly getting hit with a tripping sensation, coming up off a psychedelic and feeling like you'd basically just pulled off like an Uma Thurman move from Pulp Fiction and snorted like you like i mean just imagine that the the setting you're going into if you have a bloody nose and you're starting to trip from snorting what was essentially what was labeled at the time as a research chemical and when i say research chemical i mean even drugs like dpt and 5meo dmt even though they were very obscure and like not even like on the street really they had already had some semblance of human testing and were given some form of chemical trials in different forms in the past. DPT, for example, there's a published study about it being used on people with alcoholism and if it helps with alcoholism from like 1974, you know, and this drug was never on the streets, but somehow scientists were, you know, doing studies on it back then. But two well, really quickly, 2CT7, sure. uh, I guess having read about it i've never tried it 
but it's really crazy how dose sensitive it seems to oh be. Oh my God, yeah. Like it was one of, I guess it was one of Shulgin's favorite, if not the best drug that he had invented, but he was also like very cautious about it. And he was like, if you take too much of this, which could mean just like, one milligram, milligram, couple milligram milligrams. more yeah. than what you're, or or inhaling versus taking it orally, it could cause like you know, like you said, like extreme nausea, vomiting, body tremors, violent episodes, and I guess it was just so varied from individual to individual. It was like really crazy, and especially if you mixed it with other drugs. Oh my god! Which I guess a lot of the people who did. Uh, I guess not a lot of people, but I guess the, the couple people who did OD, it was definitely taken with other things. Absolutely. Yeah. So this is, I mean, of course, this all culminates with a very, you know, tragic story. But the, uh, yeah, the unfortunate thing is Shulgin did warn in his own book uh, that this is not to be messed around with. It's not just that it's really potent because it is, but, you know, compared to like 2CB or other Phenethylamines like 2CT7, like mescaline. I mean, mescaline is, I think, like the psychedelic dose of mescaline is something like 300 milligrams. It's not very potent. But these other derivatives of it, like 2CT7, 2CB, 2CT, 2CI, they're all active at like the 5 milligram range orally, right? So, you know, for some people, you know, oral doses of some of these phenethylamines, in my experience at least, can be incredibly variable. One person could take 10 milligrams of 2CT7, mm. have an extremely intense trip, and someone could take 20 milligrams of it and feel almost nothing. That's I've been in experiences like that before. I remember seeing that. And so I think that that poses a danger too, where it's like, oh, I'm not feeling anything. I need to take more. Right, right. And I yep. think that that is what really fucked most people in the end because it's like, and I even made this mistake once with a, wasn't 2CT7, but it was a 2, I think it was, might have been 2CI. I took an oral dose of it that was fairly mild, you know, kind of underdosed on purpose. And then within two hours, I wasn't feeling anything. So I'm like, I'm gonna just gonna snort a tiny, tiny bit of it. And once I did, that's when I was like, oh, now the oral dose is hitting me and I just did oh too God. much. I shouldn't have done that. Why did I fucking do that? You know, I should. So it's like, that's another danger. Sometimes the phenethylamines can take a much longer time to hit you. And sometimes that does happen even with LSD. Some people will mistakenly think that they are not feeling it enough, like an mm -hmm. hour in and take another hit. And then it'll really start to kick in. Then. Yeah, that's, it happened to me once and it was yeah. the worst decision I ever made in my life. Yeah, so I think that it's always wise, especially with a longer duration psychedelic to be like, Ride this out for a good three hours. Yeah, three hours. <laughs> three hours at least. Yeah. If you're literally not feeling anything by the three hour mark, then maybe take a little bit more. Do not take the same dose you did before. Right. Don't go for a, because it's almost like what I did was almost like the adage about, uh, you know, don't drink like uh, hard liquor after you're like buzzed on beer. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. with that, whatever people say, it's like I'm snorting something that I already took a pill of that's you shouldn't do that in general if you're not feeling anything um so that i mean and the other way around wouldn't be smart either don't take a pill of something after you've snorted something you're not feeling it either i mean maybe wait and to try to do it again later that's probably the wisest decision i would say um but so i'll just go into my own personal experience really quickly with 2ct7 i mean when i bought this stuff the only supplier online at the time that had it was this place called JLF. Uh, the subtitle for the store was called JLF Poisonous Non-Consumables. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so the actual name of the store and the philosophy of the store was almost kind of like a troll in the face of law enforcement and in the face of their customers because they were basically getting their customers to agree to this philosophy that you're buying poison. You're not consuming any of these products you're buying from us, right? Okay, good. You know that these aren't to be consumed. You know, that was sort of the implicit agreement when you made a purchase on the store. Well, wait, let me let me ask you a question. Sure. So at this point, um, 2CT7 was actually being sold at these online realtors. It wasn't that you had to make it yourself oh, no. based on these recipes. Wow. So when like when these people did OD, of course, not just on 2CT7, but coupled with these other drugs, headlines were like this perfectly legal drug. Um, well, yeah, I'm going to go into that. Yeah. You know, this epidemic of whatever, but it's, I, I didn't know if that was actually true. Like it was completely legal. It is and true. available. Wow. It is true. But the, but the headlines, and we'll talk about that in a second. Uh -huh. What's misleading about that is they made it sound like, you know, all the kids were doing it. All the kids knew about it. Oh, yeah, and then yeah, yeah. any kid could buy it. Technically. Yeah, it's true. If you were like an 18 year old kid, you could buy it. But the obscurity of it was what right. kept it fairly, you know, out of the hands of any almost anybody. I mean, it, so it wasn't, it wasn't one of those things. You know, probably the only people who are really seeking this out were people like me who are like nerdy about psychedelics or like just raver, you know, hardcore psychonauts who wanted to go to something else. You know, that they hadn't tried yet. That's my perception of it. I mean, so I bought a gram of this stuff, two CT seven from JLF. It arrived in a plastic bag with a big skull and crossbones logo on it just very blatantly saying do not consume this is poison there's no reliability for the company if you do consume it and the drug i remember it was it was basically just a, a ziploc bag with a tiny little foil square in it like a flat tin foil square so i remember you know naive i think i was maybe 20 at the time i'm like oh cool it arrived let's try some so we open it up and it's it's the tiniest amount of powder. You know, it's a I'm thinking a gram in my head, it's like a lot of powder. No, it's not. It's like a flat inch by half inch flat rectangle square of tinfoil. So I'm opening this up and it's this really clumpy, very acrid smelling powder. And all of a sudden I'm like, okay, now I'm realizing I'm getting a little in over my head. I'm not going there's no way I can give this to my friends in in good conscience right now. I mean, I know for a fact that this stuff is people have had terrible trips from doing just a little bit too much i'm not going to be able to weigh this shit out what, what was i thinking ordering this so so I, I you know before even being able to consume any i was like now i need to buy a scale that can weigh this out so i went to some head shops in berkeley you know all the pot stores at the time they would only carry like scales for pot dealers to weigh eighths and grams out on. None of them went down to like 0 0.01, which is what you, or 0 0.02. That's like two milligrams, you know, sensitivity. So I finally found a scale that went down all the way to the milligram range. I had to spend like 400 bucks, which seemed like a ton of money at the time. But I was like, I cannot in good conscience do this or give it to anybody without weighing it out. And even, and meanwhile, I'm reading stories about people on rec.drugs.psychedelics who are like, yeah, I use the graph paper method. I pour out my drugs onto a piece of graph hell paper no. and organize it in even oh, squares. And I'm just no, like, dude. no, you're no, no you no, fucking no, no, don't no, do no. that. Are you kidding me? I mean, when you're dealing with drugs that are potent in the 10 milligram range, that is extremely dumb. Maybe something else, but not, not something like this. So 
at this time I had already known a few people who were like dealing mushrooms and weed and even some of those people are like, hey man, can I use your scale? Cause like none of these people had access to a good scale. And I, it's not like I wanted to hang out with drug dealers and do like a free favor for one. It was more like, I'm thinking in my mind, well, they're probably not going to be responsible and they will probably still distribute this without weighing it out. So for the benefit of their customers, not harming their customers and making sure their customers don't get ripped off. Yes, I will help these people weigh these things out for them. So I did that a few times, um, you know, and sometimes people would give me like acid or something in return. So, um, you know, and so I guess in a way that was kind of beneficial. But I mean, I remember the first time I did it, first time I actually got a chance to do it, it was so fucking intense and overwhelming and just way more than I bargained for that I, I made the decision immediately to never do it again. Really? So this was the dose that was recommended for beginners? Yeah, but I think I probably I did a little bit more thinking that I could mm. handle. I wanted a stronger trip. Mm. So I remember, you know, all my friends, uh, some of my friends who came over, they never tried it before. We all decided to do it together and go on a hike and have like a sober, you know, driver trip sitter with us. And we all took it at the same time. And I remember as soon as we got in the car, um, I just started tripping really hard. And I just remember all my friends just seemed like they were not tripping at all yet. And just being like, oh my God, like, are they just able to handle their shit so much better than I am? Like, why are they, why are they just talking so casually? And I remember listening, to, we were listening to like a Psytrance record in the car on the way there. And I remember looking at the, the car tires spinning on the cars next to us and seeing the spinning on the car tires and thinking it looked too good or too fast or something and i remember thinking am i am i hallucinating yet i don't know so i remember sort of looking up at the sky and like immediately i see the clouds in the sky spinning as fast as a tire like in a type of like visual distortion that i, I just i had done acid before never seen anything like this where it was like the speed of the visuals were like scared me i was like I was like, I'm tripping way too hard. This is like overwhelming as fuck. And I just remember like immediately puking oh, <laughs> in the wow. car, like all over my, like as soon as I saw these spinning clouds, <laughs> it was like, it just overwhelmed me to think the only reason I'm seeing this is because I am tripping way too hard. Like yeah, I yeah, am yeah. fucking fucked up. And so I just remember just barfing all over myself in the car, being like really embarrassed, you know, around all my friends. Lucky it was my car. So I didn't have to like feel <laughs> guilty about that. But when we got to the park, I remember one of the guys that was one of my friends who had a lot of experience with psychedelics, he's like, I think Robbie is like tripping really, really hard. I wanted to like ask you some questions to see how hard you're tripping. And I remember him asking, just the first thing he was asking me is like, are you seeing trails? And I said, yes, big time. He's like, and he, and he waved his arm in the air in front of me, like both arms in the air in front of me and I was sitting down against a tree and then he stopped and he's like, tell me how long it's, it takes for you to stop seeing the trails from my arms. And I waited and waited and, and I probably waited like seven or eight seconds. And I was like, okay, finally they're gone. And he's like, dude, you, he's like, we probably should let you relax here. Like you're tripping really hard. Like I didn't realize that that was abnormal. Like to see trails eight seconds after, you know, someone waves their hand through the air. So that was sort of how he gauged, you know, as a so sort of responsible trip sitter, he was sort of trying to test, you know, mm -hmm. almost do like an acuity test. And he was like, this dude needs needs to chill and we need to sort of, you know, not let take our eyes off of him kind of thing. So, you know, just another reason why if you're doing psychedelics with people, 
should always be someone sober, hopefully someone experienced with you as well. Because, you know, if I had just been with a bunch of bros who didn't, weren't caring for my mental state at the time, I think that really helped me at least to just be identified as someone who needed extra care. You know, just that being acknowledged was like something helpful. And little things like that can be really helpful when you're trip, especially when you're tripping in a really hard, emotionally intense state. It's almost like you can become like a little kid and you need some kind of reassurance or not like love, I'm not expecting like a male friend to give you like loving energy and like hug you or anything like that, but just like reassurance, kindness, patience, trying to be understanding, trying to ask questions if someone does seem like they're having a hard time. Yeah, there's nothing worse than like someone trying to just pretend like everything's normal because they're not comfortable yeah. just being with the trip, you know? And so it's just, that's really kind of can be unsettling too. Absolutely. Know? Or like making you feel bad, being like, oh, that dude, too. you're tripping really hard. It's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, or like, or like, man, you like almost like a condescending, like you can't yeah, handle yeah, yeah. your shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember one of my roommates when I was in this period of my life was kind of more of a hard head, I would say. That's a term that we used to use for people who like didn't get as affected by drugs. Not like mm -hmm. you got affected normal, but like it just seemed like it took a lot to get you affected. And my friend... I thought he was a hard head because he was kind of stoic about, you know, not getting very affected when he would do things. So um, I remember when it was his time to do 2CT7, he finally had like a free day. He was actually really excited about doing it. He was researching it. I remember like him and I were probably the only ones of our group of friends who were like really keen on trying this. And I remember telling him, look, this is like one of the most intense experiences I've ever had on this kind of drug. So like, I'm not going to do it again with you when you do it, but I, I will be sober with you just to make sure things go okay. So he's like, okay. And I and he does, you know, same dose I do, mm -hmm. some at like 1 p.m., right? Feels nothing for two hours. Wow. Absolutely nothing. We So we're, we're planning to go to like some generic party later that night, you know, thinking that he would already yeah. be coming down from it at that point. So he's like, you know what? He's like, I kind of want to be no. tripping at this party. He's like, and I'm not feeling anything yet. And, no, I, and no, he's like, no. I'm going to take some more. And I'm no like, you know what, dude? I don't know if that's the greatest idea because I've read that sometimes it could take a while for it to kick in. And he's like, no, he's like, I'm, I'm okay. I think I can handle it. He didn't snort it. He took, I think he took about 10 milligrams more. So he, I think he pretty much took a double dose and literally on the way to the party, he's like, oh man. He's like, I'm now I'm starting to feel that second dose. Like in his mind, he's thinking that he didn't take enough the first time and that the second dose How much longer in. or how many hours after the second dose did he start feeling it? It was a while. It was like a good... That's so crazy. It was like a good another two hours. And, you know, oh my God. part of me is thinking, you know, maybe people who are kind of more hardhead psychologically, maybe on some level they are feeling it, but like they're, they're not really conscious that they're feeling it yet. Because psychedelics right. can sometimes be subtle. They change the way you think. They change the way you mm -hmm. sensory input comes in. Sometimes you're maybe not aware of the fact that you're already tripping and you, maybe you already are. It, that's maybe like a seamless transition into it sometimes for some people. So as we're driving up to this party, he seems like really in a good mood. He's got this glowing smile. You know, I'm kind of like enjoying being around him just because of how much fun he's seeming to have. I'm playing different songs in the car for him to, you know, like, and he's like, oh man, this sounds so good. He was like loving it. Yeah, yeah. Walk into the party. 
And I think probably, you know, like a lot of when you're on psychedelics, your sensors, sense, senses are heightened, your emotions are heightened. I think it just might have just been walking into a party, a room full of strangers that really just somehow yeah. it just triggered his trip to go from wonderful, ecstatic, having a great time to absolute terror in an instant. <laughs> and I remember looking over at him after we walked in and, you know, I wasn't a really like enjoy, I didn't really like to go to like random parties with strangers but I remember looking at him and seeing a facial expression on his face that I'd never seen before which looked more like pure anxiety and I, I remember immediately being worried because I never really saw that expression on his face and being like I remember sort of kind of putting my hand on his shoulder and just sort of like talking to him quietly in his ear I was like how are you feeling right now like are you okay he was looking in front of him and he's like I just saw the carpet do this and he moved his hand up and down in the air like a wave like three feet up and down oh god i was like it went that high so i almost felt like i was the other guy yeah in my previous trip kind of taking that role and be like wait you saw the carpet go three feet in a wave really it went that high and he's like yeah he's like and it's still way he's like it's getting higher and i was like okay i was like, I was like I think we should probably just go to the car right now because i don't know you know this might not be the best setting for you as soon as we get to the car, I'm clasping my friend's hand harder than any I've ever held someone's hand in my life. And he is laying down on the back seat, repeating to himself that he's going to die. Wow. And that he need, and he needs me to tell him he's not going to die. And I remember so sad. I had never been in a situation like this with anybody before in my life where I had to like reassure someone that they were not going to die. And knowing that it was all in their head, but knowing that they believed it, and I just had to be there with them and sit with them for an agonizing, I don't know, it, was like, it felt like maybe two or three hours until he finally it, it started to calm down. But I, I mean, it was it was very intense. And I just remember taking a lot out of me and also feeling like, man, this my, this guy would never do this for me. I remember also being a little bit mad, too, by the end of it, like <laughs> thinking I like, felt drained, like he would never have extended himself like this for me if I was having a bad time. So I had all these mixed feelings about it. But. You know, it was just a, it was a teachable moment for me where I'm like, you know, these are very serious chemicals. Um, they're not, you know, you can't, you have to use them very responsibly. And I think it was probably that moment forward where I was like, um, you know, let's like, just collectively, let's be more responsible about this. Like, let's never, ever do, you know, try to up the dose later on. That's, that's a no-no in the future for any of us. Like, if I heard one of you guys doing that, I'm going to be really upset, you know, mm -hmm. like, do not do that. Um, so there was sort of this rule, you know, no, understanding that that was a really dumb thing to do. And I think we probably were a little more responsible after that. But, you know, not long after that, uh, not surprisingly, there was a major news story, you know, across the country on a lot of local news channels, even that this drug 2CT7 was deadly and it had killed a 17-year-old boy who overdosed from it. I remember when that news came out, my immediate reaction was, oh shit, this is the end of an era. Like, this is going to be the beginning of the end. And sadly, I wasn't wrong. It was kind of the beginning of the end. It was, you asked earlier, you know, in our previous episode, what was the spark that sparked the DEA scheduling MDMA? I couldn't say what the actual in single incident was, but this incident, uh, the overdose of the 17-year-old boy named Josh Robbins, 
from 267 was the direct spark that caused the DEA to crack down on all pretty much everything we've just been talking about in terms of this legal, quasi-legal drug arena. It was pretty crazy. Sadly, this is just horrifying. According to Rolling Stone, in, in an article about this kid's death, um, you know, he and let's just say he also had consumed ecstasy. God knows what was in that ecstasy pill. Nitrous oxide and mini thin containing ephedrine and guaifenesin. So I don't know what those are, but it sounds like a, a lethal combo in general, considering what you just said about 2CT7. But this is really sad. In, the, in his final hours, he was like, sounds kind of like your friend just screaming, I don't want to die. Like knowing that he like had fucked up, you know, and he was like vomiting and it just sounds just like the most nightmarish thing ever to have your life end that way, knowing that you like, <laughs> you fucked up, you know, and you took too much of all of this shit. And the guy who supplied it to him and, you know, who was there uh, probably just had so much like survivor's guilt afterwards. I mean, he was tripping incredibly hard, basically watching his friend die. Oh while he, he was driving him to the emergency room while still hallucinating, what? seeing like visuals in the sky and the light tracers and stuff. I mean, he describes it in this. I'm assuming you're reading from the same Rolling yeah, Stone yeah, article. Yeah. This is from the articles Abby's talking about is Rolling Stone issue 888 from January 31st, 2002 um, is when this happened. So, I mean, it happened a little bit before that, but basically, yeah, um, I think it actually happened in 2001, this kid died. So this article comes out in 2002, but this incident happened in 2001. And immediately, you know, everyone's like, who, where did he get this and who made it? Like, who, where does the drug even come from? So the first two places the news goes to is JLF and the guy who runs it named Mark Neomoller in Indiana. They also go to Alexander Shulgin, the guy who invented to CT7 in his book and who talks about it in his book, Peacall. Phenethalamines I Have Known and Loved from 1991. That was the first time 2CT7 was discussed because Shulgin invented it. He puts the recipe in his book as he did dozens of other recipes for other drugs he invented, including other 2C uh, phenethalamines. So, yeah, I mean, it's a pretty disturbing story. Very sad, but I will say that this Rolling Stone article seems like it's pretty much just a hit piece and a smear piece, and it's a hysteria piece that I believe did a lot of damage and actually probably helped amplify the DEA's crusade to shut this stuff down. And actually, there's a pretty good article that disinfo.com, um, you might remember that website from a long time ago, wrote a rebuttal article, actually, to Rolling Stone's article sort of giving a more honest assessment of everything. Wait, just a side note. Sure. Remember the distant... I loved thisinfo.com. He would, like... Whoever was running the main, like, editor of the site or whatever, like, the main publisher, like, really liked all this breaking the set stuff that I was doing at the beginning. And we had all the disinfo books, of course. And then he just became a complete, like, Russiagate guy. And he like, I remember he like wrote this giant post on Facebook saying that I was like a Russian operative and that he would like never be publishing any of my stuff again. He was like embarrassed that he did. And I was like, huh, that's so interesting that you um, 
you bought into that. <laughs> you bought into a huge fake conspiracy. Well done. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I noticed the disinfo people, I liked a lot of their stuff, but yeah, it was like, they really actually lifted us up for a bit. I remember they were one of the bigger entities that would help us promote Reedy Roots Radio. Like, they allowed us to post things and they would appear on their front page. And then yeah. all of a sudden, I remember even kind of having some rude exchanges with them asking what happened. And like, the, it was cagey. It was almost like one of the guys eventually responded to me and be like, what do you expect? Like free promotion, free advertising from your podcast? Like, that's not what we do here. And I'm like, well, that, I'm just wondering, like, what changed? Like, why you guys used to, like, be yeah. so eager towards it and then just all of a sudden would never post it anymore? Like, I'm just, I'm just trying to figure it out, you know? What, what happened? Um, but No, no, no. I'm telling you I know what happened because later I saw the guy yeah, yeah. post, like, a big Facebook post basically saying that I, I was, like, a Russian agent, essentially. Yeah, so, yeah. So yeah, I think that it just stemmed from that. But then later on, he kind of came out with it. It's very strange. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I Too mean, bad. the East Bay Express um, also did a pretty decent article about it called Two CT7's Bad Trip. And we'll make all these articles available um, after the podcast comes out in the form of links and the notes. I like this article because it talks about how it was totally misrepresented in the Rolling Stone article because it made it seem like it was pervasive and it was everywhere, this toxic trend. And it was just like, actually, it only popped up, as you mentioned, it was like very underground, very remote and just kind of small pockets across the country that had these negative experiences that were just completely sensationalized and made it seem like it was like, you know, the next deadly wave that needed to be cracked down upon. And so I appreciated them dispelling that. The East Bay Express article talks about something that I had forgotten about that, you know, just like what I was saying about Japan's um, sort of, well, it wasn't illicit in Japan, but they had like a shroom, you know, they had shroom shops. They had, even in some cases, pure chemical psychedelics for sale. Well, it says in this East Bay Express article that 2CT7 first appeared like as a commercial product in Holland uh, as a, a blue tablet and powder it was given the street name blue mystic and actually the brand name sometimes they would sell it in these stores i remember seeing you could still look up pictures of blue mystic and you could see the packaging you know sold at these like mushroom or coffee shops or they as they call them smart shops that's how long it took uh for it to come to the united states you know there's other rumors out there that there were a couple other deaths apparently from 2CT7. In the East Bay Express article, they talk about a guy named Jake DeRoy, who in October 2000, 35 milligrams of the drug snorted. Which was how much more than the recommended dose? I've never heard of anyone taking it. The snorted dose, the most I've ever heard of anyone taking is 10. And that's very strong and for snorted. And that's huge. Yeah, that's like yeah. it compounds um, the effects. Yeah. Um, and so it says on here, this is multiplies its effects well beyond that of the 10 to 30 milligram oral dose, oral <sighs> dose. So uh, this, they say that his death was very violent. After About an hour after taking the drug, he became extremely agitated and began yelling about evil spirits. A half hour later, he was convulsing, vomiting and bleeding heavily from his nose. The coroner found a large edema in his lung. And another guy apparently died in Seattle, a 24-year-old died by taking an unknown amount of 267 in conjunction with ecstasy. So that's definitely a case, you know, two of the most known deaths 
about 267 seem to be from a mixture of taking it with other drugs. One of them seems to be just taking a huge quantity. So, you know, I think it's pretty clear that 2CT7 can cause dangerous overdoses. And it may be one of the only psychedelics drugs in this whole between phenethylamines and, and tryptamines that actually is something that can be lethal. And that's unusual. So I think it maybe was a hard pill for some people to swallow at first that one of these Shulgin creations had like a lethal overdose amount. I, and I, but I think what happened after this is, you know, it's it's really unfortunate because they just may try to make an example out of you know the online retailer who was who had sold this stuff, and they seized his property, they arrested him. He had been pretty brazen in a lot of ways in terms of like how he uh, stuck his neck out there to kind of rub it in their face. I mean, I remember he did like an interview in some online zine. Where it was like, so you're Mark Neilmoller from JLF. Like, you know, you've been one of the most infamous suppliers of, you know, ayahuasca plants and these things for ethnogen exploration. Like, tell me more about, like, how you got interested in this. And, the, and then the answer was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Ayahuasca plants? Like, I've never heard that word before. I only sell poisonous non-consumables. So that's the only thing, like, that I'll be able to answer questions about. <laughs> so, like, he literally, like, the entire interview was done like that. Like, multiple pages of, like, him playing dumb to an extent that was almost like an Andy Kaufman performance. And so, in a way, he kind of did make himself a target by being so brazen and, like, walking to the absolute edge of what was, like, legally on paper allowed to do. And it was at this point that the DEA decided... Even though this was all legal on paper, what he was doing, buying this stuff was legal, they decided now to enforce an, an, an act called the Analog Act that they had not enforced ever in its existence. And it's this blanket law that's been on the books for a fairly long time that says that if a, if a, a drug, if it's actually legal and it's not scheduled yet, but its effects are pharmacologically similar to an illicit or illegal drug, then by definition, it is already illegal and that they can enforce it as such under the Analog Act. So it was almost meant to be like drugs that aren't even invented yet are already illegal. Like if someone tries to invent a heroin analog, you know, um, that's illegal or a cocaine analog, that's illegal. So that was sort of the way the law was designed. But it's it's basically, I mean, it's kind of technically unenforceable because it's never really been established how far that goes you know what do they how do they actually define that there hasn't been a strict definition of that so it is interesting like the desperation on behalf of the dea to try to crack down on this because like you said i mean these companies and people were trying to push everything to the absolute limit and it's really interesting to see how far they were willing to go to put themselves out there to do these things, to make these chemicals available, mm -hmm. while you know at the same time you had Sasha and Anne had just published um, PCAL in 1991 that had 200 of these chemical analogs recipes in them. It's crazy. I wanted to see when the Analog Act was passed since you asked. Mm -hmm. It was passed in 1986. Really? So... I'm, I'm, it's interesting because I, I feel like this was around a very similar time to when ecstasy was scheduled. 
And there actually is a famous court precedent about the Analog Act that came out of uh, what I'm about to talk about with um, with Mark Neilmore. I mean, I won't go into it too deeply. Basically, he was raided September 7th, 2001, right after this uh, kid overdosed. So, yeah, MDMA was listed as Schedule One drug in 1984, which was sad because it, what that meant was that it said that it was a substance with no medicinal value. And then the following year, so just that next year, they passed the Controlled Substances Analog Enforcement Act. Um, so, yeah, that's super interesting. And so it meant that any chemical that had a substantial similarity to that of a Schedule One or Two drug was in essence, just illegal. Makes me wonder if they that was partly in response to the, the existence or the entrance of 2CB because that was a Shulgin creation and that was one of the first of his, I believe the first of his that appeared right after ecstasy was scheduled. It's just, it makes it much more daring, the fact that Shulgin, the Shulgins published PCAL after oh, yeah. these were illegal. Like they published them, it was kind of like how um, the McKenna's published the, you know, under the under a different acronym. Yeah. Um, published the recipes for psilocybin and stuff. Like the fact that they actually published these recipes, knowing that they, I mean, that's fucking nuts. It is very, very nuts, and their story is very fascinating, and we should probably go into them. I mean, I just wanted to just really quickly say that when Mark Neilamoller was raided, they seized. All the money in his personal bank accounts, you know, they did everything with uh, federal asset forfeiture laws, you know, what they do in any drug raid, really, even though he was not doing technically anything illegal. So it's interesting just how the DEA or these government agencies just decide to change the law arbitrarily when they want to basically do the same thing they would do to like a major heroin dealer to a guy who was selling all legal products. He didn't, you know, that was the whole point. These were all legal. They took $6,000 in cash. They took his vehicle. They took about $1.25 million in assets total and about $750,000 in additional money um, from him. And I think eventually he did like get out of jail, but it was, it was basically designed, I believe, to scare every, anybody else who was involved in the similar world that Mark Neilamoller was away from doing this. And that meant... Anyone selling, you know, plants that could be used to extract DMT from anyone even selling salvia was now worried because that was relatively new onto the scene. And there was an argument to be made that, you know, the analog act is so vague that they could just say salvia is somehow an analog of marijuana, even though it's a plant. Like, so like, that's how worried people were getting because they knew that the DEA was just going to try to, you know, scare people. They understood intuitively that this was designed to scare people away from engaging in this sort of legal, you know, world. We're going to make everybody think it's all illegal just to scare them away from doing things that are technically legal, essentially. Yeah, made the guy a complete martyr. And it's really unfortunate. How long did he go to prison for? I mean, I know that his court trial was something that actually like created an important legal precedent in the analog act itself. And it was specifically about him selling what was referred to as one comma four, which the DEA was trying to say was an analog of GHB, even though it's not really, 
but it metabolizes into GHB when you ingest it. But it's actually like used in all these industrial products and stuff. It's like used in manufacturing. So it's like a really easy to get chemical. But the DEA was basically trying to say because he sold it, uh, that it was like sold with the intention of being used like GHB. That created an important legal precedent. If people want to read more about it, it's on Wikipedia. It's called the United States versus Washam. And I guess the court did rule that the Analog Act was unconstitutionally vague, but that in the specific case of 1,4, being an analog to DHB was true enough to make it illegal. So it was like the court determined like two completely different, almost like contradictory things, uh, oddly enough. I, I don't really know what the end of his story is. I just know that this was the beginning of the end. This started sort of a chain reaction of events where the only people who will enter the marketplace at this point will be people who will put their livelihoods at risk and who will be doing it knowing that they could be raided at any time. Yeah, I mean, at the beginning of Shulgin's PCAL, he says, like, if you actually try to make any of these, your life could be completely destroyed because it's all highly illegal. So I guess I should have known that it was illegal when he published the book, but it is just so interesting because they just are seemingly so innocuous and this just cute, really accessible couple who, you know, had all these people in and out of his quote unquote farm. And it's just like, it's just fucking nuts. I mean, considering how close he was to the DEA throughout his life, <laughs> it's a, uh, yeah, you're playing with fire there, man. I mean, it's pretty amazing that he was able to get away with that. You know, we talk all about how weird it is that all these other people have government connections or how like Gordon Wasson knew some guy had paperclip and uh, was funded by the CEA. But like Shulgin's, you know, weird involvement with elites or people in the government is almost entirely different. But it would also uh, peak people's conspiracy buttons, you know, just based on how odd it is that there's such a revolutionary figure now and who's seen as one of the most important revolutionary figures in psychedelics now was a, like a DA consultant for many years. And he wrote, um, what was it called? The Yeah. The DA like controlled substance guidebook or something, a handbook for the DEA. Yeah. And then later in his life consulted as like a witness, an expert witness for DEA trials and stuff. And a technical consultant too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, let's tell his story because he is such an important figure. He's arguably tested and created more drugs than anyone else on Earth um, with all these analogs. I think over well over 200. So he was a beatnik back in the 60s and 70s, another child of essentially the Bay Area. But he was essentially a child prodigy. He was a complete fucking genius. Um, he could like pick up any instrument and just know how to play it. He played the piano, the violin. He wrote poetry. He like never, he describes himself at school, never even looking at any textbook at all. Cause it was just like so boring. And he just like learned to just never speak out in class because it made him so, you know, so noticed. And he was just like, I just wanted to just be a wallflower. And then so he took these tests, like competency tests, and ended up completely like blowing it out of the water um, for some national scholarship for an all-tuition paid enrollment at Harvard when he was 15. <laughs> and he basically just went to Harvard when he was 16 years old 
with this all-expenses-paid scholarship based entirely on, like, chemistry and math and all of that. Like, he wasn't even, he didn't, he wasn't even, like, competent in, like, the English language or, like, grammar or anything because he just never cared about learning any of that stuff. He was just so fucking smart, naturally gifted in what he knew that he would eventually pursue. And he was totally miserable at school. Of course, how could you not be? Like Harvard is full of all of these like really elite, polished, you know, children born and bred from like the upper uh, echelons of society. They are all are like the who's who's from all these like wealthy families. And he just wasn't. He was like a more working class family. His dad was a Russian immigrant. And so he was completely fucking miserable. He spent the first year there just completely isolated. And so he joined the Navy. He joined the Navy, um, I'm assuming, when he was 17, which is so crazy. He was in the officer's training program at the Navy. And he was involved in World War II, which is so fascinating to think that he's, you know, he was that old that he was in World War II. And he basically, like, doesn't want to talk about it. He, he, what's interesting about PCAL is that he's so explicitly detailed in all of the, the memories of his life, early childhood, and psychedelic experiences that it's just fascinating. It's like he has the capacity to have this photographic memory, kind of like how we were describing Alex Gray has the capability to like visualize his psychedelic experiences in an artistic form. Alexander Shulgin can express it in such detail that it's completely mind-blowing to me how he can do that through all of these encounters, through all these experiences, especially like something as emotional as like making love like on a psychedelic and then to actually be able to catalog that experience in such a descriptive way is something that I can't even fathom, you know? So he was able to do all this in the book and he talks about how he, his interest became piqued in pharmacology, psychopharmacology when he had this horrible infection on his thumb, when he was like basically out in the middle of the fucking ocean on this boat And so he had this infection on his thumb where all of his higher ups were just like, you're going to have to fucking amputate your thumb. Your thumb is completely shot. And so he just kept getting injections of morphine every like couple hours. And he was like, he was so fascinated at the fact that the pain was there, but it was so deadened that you could just ignore it. And so he basically was like, the action is not the fact that the thumb has this site, central site of pain, like intolerable pain. It's the fact that my brain has the ability to overcome this pain. And so he was like, that completely blew his mind. He ended up actually getting the bone shaved from his thumb and his thumb was like an inch shorter than all of his other fingers once he actually went to, when he landed from, or when he docked the ship. And then he said that once he docked the ship, this is really interesting. And it actually is like hard to even wrap your mind around the fact that this is real. Like, one thing that we haven't really talked about in this series, Robbie, is just the concept of the placebo effect and how strong your mind is that you can actually mimic experiences that you hear that a drug can cause literally out of whole cloth. Like, you can do that to yourself. It's something that I still can't really wrap my mind around because it really opens up this Pandora's box of, like, mind over matter, things that almost seem, like, cartoonish, and like science fiction-y to me. But this is a very real proven phenomenon, and I feel like we haven't even really begun to tap into what that really means. But 
this is really interesting that after he got, you know, this infection, he was injected with morphine. He takes this ambulance to the hospital thinking that he's going to have an amputation of his thumb. And he gets this drink that they tell him is orange juice. And so he drinks this drink and he sees that there's a drug, like something undissolved at the bottom of the glass. And they were to- they told to him, like, this is the anesthetic. You need to drink this drug so we can do surgery on you. Yeah. And so he like purposefully like didn't drink the drug. He like, he wanted to stay awake because <laughs> wow. that's how crazy he was. He was like, I'm not going to drink whatever this, this undissolved crystals are. And I'm just going to drink the juice and like fake them out. Holy shit. And then he said that he blacked out. It didn't matter that he didn't drink it. He completely blacked out and became comatose. And when he woke up after he was operated upon, they told him that it was undissolved sugar and that he didn't have an anesthetic at all. And that he claims that the fraction of a gram of sugar had rendered him unconscious because he truly believed it could do just that. And that the power of like this placebo was able to radically alter his state of consciousness. And that left such an impression upon him that he was like, I am going to dedicate my life to basically just like expanding the capabilities of the mind. To me, it almost seems unbelievable. I... You know, I do remember vaguely reading about this experience of his, and this is not something that he alone has communicated about. I do think Anne Shulgin, um, who becomes a very important character in his life and who actually wrote half of PCAL, uh, she describes, and I don't know if she describes it in PCAL or, or later in her life, but like visiting the Vatican for the first time and like going inside the whatever like the main churches or like most famous, you know, one of the most famous places in the Vatican. And she remembers or describes the feeling of feeling as if she was on MDMA and experiencing like a feeling like being on MDMA in very great detail. But, you know, again, like, but But without being on a drug. Right. And as someone who has not experienced that myself, it is very hard to believe. And I don't know if those kinds of experiences come easier for different people, I don't know. I tend to be a little skeptical when I hear things like that. But again, I mean, the dude is obviously brilliant and he did choose to write about this. So like, maybe it is true. I I really can't say. Right. Well, there's one really interesting thing that he talks about that I've never considered before that could explain that some people do have more of a precursor or tendency to have these kind of spiritual experiences unprompted or like un you know unregistered yeah. with an actual compound like he talks about how the fact that naturally biologically human beings have the receptors to receive psychedelic drugs but we don't have the psychedelic drugs naturally occurring inside of us and he questions he's like did we at one time in the evolutionary scale timeline did we actually have psychedelic drugs that were activated and as a consequence of dropping defenses like let's say you know hunting and you look at a saber-toothed tiger's tooth and you're like oh this is fucking beautiful and then you get eaten and he's like was that part of the natural selection that these psychedelic metabolites in the body were phased out evolutionarily (laughs) 
by people who were pushed out of the gene pool because it just simply wasn't conducive Amazing. to human survival. Wait, so he has like the opposite point of view of Terrence McKenna? <laughs> it's like the stoned <laughs> ape is like fucking got phased out, naturally selected out. <laughs> I just so, that's so interesting. I had no idea they even had uh, remotely opposing theories in that regard. I wonder, I mean, but Shulgin also seemed like he would change his ideas in those in that regard more over time than than his chemistry stuff so maybe he i wonder if he eventually ended up thinking that by the by the end of his life right and so yeah it's super fascinating when you just hear him kind of talk and just people just kind of throwing different questions at him and he just he just goes off into some really crazy interesting threads that I, that really made me think allows you a border touching of the consciousness of uh, how far out from you is your you, the outer universe? Where does your consciousness extend to? Where it is? How 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 do we communicate? Uh, by word, by motion, by action. These are things that uh, are are thought out processes. This is the the brain function, the talking, all the operation of the brain. But the concept of an idea, uh, the expression of an emotion, of, of a of a. Um, uh, Empathy, the, 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 where does the concept of empathy originate? He'll just like make people kind of like all these like weird esoteric, like people at Burning Man, you know, that there's all this footage of him like trying mm -hmm. to explain chemistry to all these people like tripping at Burning Man. And it's just like so far off base. It just seemed like he was so like heads and shoulders above even the community that he was embraced by. Like it was very, he kind of was almost turned off by it. And a lot of these people who were throwing questions at him being like, do you know, do psychedelics make people better? Do you see God? Can you like reach heaven or hell? And he's just like, look, like they don't make you good. Like psychedelics don't show, it's like basically what we've been saying. Psychedelics don't make you someone you are not. And he was like, and I'm actually really fucking annoyed with a lot of these people that I meet at these conventions. He was like, this you know, he's like, this isn't a game. Like, people don't respect these substances and they don't, like, purify them enough. And he just is, like, very, you could tell he's just, like, kind of annoyed at how people are very flippant. How do you define consciousness and how much of it is determined by chemistry? Well, I, that's not a question. Uh, I consider consciousness where you are if you're alive. And a lot of people put it as a brain function. I consider consciousness as a mental function. What's interesting is that he, after he had this crazy profound experience with the placebo effect, he, his first actual psychedelic trip was taking mescaline. Um, and I think that him and Anne actually took mescaline first as their first psychedelic experience because of just the natural companionship of just like the indigenous, you know, experience having this chemical compound exist for millennia and like having kind of this almost innate trust like this we know that this is like good and safe and um he describes the mescaline trip that he took as a rainbow that had always provided me with all the hues i could respond to but that all of a sudden had hundreds of different nuances of colors of the main primary colors which were completely new and he says, which I have never, ever forgotten. I can't explain any of what these colors were, but it was like all of a sudden, all of the things that were just like invisible. He's like, 99% of what's around you, you just ignore. And he was like, and all of a sudden, this opened up a world of just the color spectrum that was just the most incredible thing and inspiring thing that he's ever seen in his life. 
and um, and he and he also just talks about how like none of this is coming from outside of you. Kind of in, an, in another way, opposite from Terrence McKenna. Like he po- talks about all these memories, all of this vision that you gain and glean from these chemicals are contained within you. Um, it was all like subdued in the depths of his memory and his psyche. And that it's just, we choose whether or not to access it. And we may even deny its existence forever. And that some people could take all of these things and never experience any of the things that he did. But I think if you're thinking about his brain already and how much of an elevated and activated state it already was being utilized in from his early childhood, like I can't even imagine, you know, taking these kind of compounds on top of that and just having like, you just are blasting off into different realms of reality. So through his just passion of um, of biochemistry and stuff, he, he easily got a job at Dow Chemical, which he calls Dole Chemical in PCAL. I don't know if it's because he's just playing around. You know, I know that they use fictional characters to describe their experience, but it's just like, it's just funny. It's like Dow Chemical is like such an evil company. <laughs> the fact that, <laughs> that he just you know, became this primary scientist, was given just an unlimited budget and just scope to do whatever the fuck he wanted because being the genius that he was, he immediately made this insecticide and synthesized it that went into commercial production immediately and was like super successful. It was actually one of the most successful insecticides that's ever been created. And so as a gift back to him, Dow was just like, you do whatever the fuck you want. Like, we're going to give you the ultimate reward that any chemist could possibly want. We're going to give you your own research facility. Like we won't even question what you're doing. And this was like immediate. And so he, he just went for it. He like, I mean, it's so crazy what he describes doing um, and just buying, you know, Sandoz LSD vials and like, like to basically put on the, um, put on like, put on the act of like doing actual research, even though he was like, you know, making all these different analogs and testing them himself. He wanted to like show the scientists when they would walk by and give tours and stuff. He'd be like, okay, I'm going to just like do all this stuff for show. So he'd set up like all these fish bowls <laughs> in his lab. And like, I mean, he would be dosing the, the fish with like LSD and tiny bits of psilocybin and stuff. But he was like, I didn't really like learn anything from this, you know? And like, largely the fish didn't really act differently but it was just like to show something visually <laughs> so no so like people would just be like oh yeah that's what we're doing like psychedelic testing on like fish <laughs> can i just <laughs> or say, whatever the hell they called <laughs> yeah the only like anecdote i have about shulgin's lab was one of the only times i went to one of the barbecues at his house um after getting sort of into that friday night dinner circle was uh one of the people that i came there with was like hey um have you ever seen his lab before? I was like, no. And I was like, should we go get him and like have him give us a tour? And they're like, no, no, no. Like, I'll just show you. So like, this is how like open and oddly free Shulgin was with just like his personal property. He literally, you didn't even have to, I mean, like it didn't even seem like he cared. Like we literally just, this guy just brought us into Shulgin's lab, let us take pictures of anything. We asked, you know, is are you sure this is okay? If we can, he's like, oh yeah, it's totally Okay. And so we we literally have like, and I wish so badly I saw these pictures of me and my friend pretending to drink out of beakers in Shulgin's <laughs> lab, like brown, like he had like all this like chemicals, like still just like in the beakers. 
But the funniest part about his lab is it literally looks like a mad scientist, like Frankenstein lab. It's literally in like a non-insulated like work shed, like in his backyard. It's got like cobwebs all over the place. It's filthy looking. It looks like something out of a horror movie. And that's like part of the charm or like the the charm of who Shulgin is. And it was sort of always come up in articles or writings about him. I'm sure if you even in the doc you watched, Abby, you probably noticed that his lab looked pretty funky. Oh, yeah, he was, he was I like mean, a total mad scientist, yeah. like <laughs> dropping beakers as he was being interviewed. He was like, oh, like, whoops. He was like, just like yeah. all over the place, liquid spilling all over the place, shit crashing on top of each other, shit stacked on top of each other. Mm-hmm. It looked very, very dangerous. But I, I forgot to say the main thing. I mean, the fact that as soon as he becomes the chemist for Dow, he resynthesized MDMA. We should mention that what he was doing right before that, that he he was synthesizing or he was experimenting with natural plant sources like nutmeg and sassafras, trying to get some kind of amphetamine or some kind of psychoactive compounds out of them and study what was actually they were made out of. And there's like chemicals inside nutmeg that I think he like identified um, as being the, the psychoactive components of it. And nutmeg is a very intense and bizarre drug to do. I think it's actually toxic, but it like can last for three days. It can be incredibly psychedelic. Can buy it at the grocery store. Not recommended at all as a legal high. But he was studying that, like leading up to uh, his discovery of NDMA. And interestingly enough, the compounds in those plants are are pharmacologically similar to MDMA. So I don't really know the exact trajectory of exactly how he got there or what got him interested in those in the first place. But it seems like it's sort of all culminated with and I, I don't know if exactly culminate this you could talk about that the german pharmaceutical patents that were sort of released after world war ii well i remember what happened so because he was so moved by mescaline he actually began testing he began his analog work of testing and taste testing all of his stuff by creating a mescaline analog first that was the first thing he created called tma And he was basically expecting just a repeat of his mescaline experience. And instead, he had a horrifying experience. He became very violent, rage-filled. He ended up like hurling rocks at like his friend's car. Um, And so he was was very alarmed. He was very alarmed. (laughs) And he was just like, why is it that this chemical structure that's almost identical to mescaline had produced the completely opposite effect in me. And so then he just became obsessed with like rearranging the atoms of all these known active substances to produce isomers that might yield slightly different effects. And that's where you get into the nutmeg stuff. Um, And that's, of course, where you get into all of the 2CI, 2CB derivatives. And then, of course, the synthesizing, the resynthesizing of MDMA which was already synthesized in Germany back in 1912. Um, Apparently, this was already made. It was declared that it had no use because I guess it wasn't orally taken at the time. And it remained kind of faded on paper for 60 years. And then it wasn't until after World War II and during the Cold War that the Pentagon took every patented drug that Germany had had and re-examined its potential for national defense. So going back to MK Ultra and just this obsession of like fighting the Soviet Union by developing some sort of mind control methods, it's funny that they like initially were like, oh fuck, what's this? Like maybe this will help us like 
like destroy mines or, you know, uh, basically make warfare more effective. And then it was like the most opposite drug possible. It was like the, it's called the love drug, like created the empathy chip in people. And so Shulgin, luckily, was the guy who was somehow reintroduced to this working at Dow and he resynthesized MDMA and the rest is history. It was like, I mean, they did the first trial, I think, on a train, pass it around to several psychiatrists who ended up trying it on themselves, and then it just exploded. It was like one of the most fast-spreading drugs in history. And he was actually really upset about how it immediately, you know, he started being called the grandfather of ecstasy and Dr. Ecstasy, and he was just like, I don't like this. I'm not happy with the fact that it's all of a sudden you know, becoming viral and like rave culture and is being basically affiliated with like this party escape drug because he was really interested in it in its raw sense. Like the fact that it actually was a healing, beautiful thing that could connect you on this spiritual level that could really help people with like terminal cancer. And you even see a Phil Donahue clip back in the 80s where terminal cancer patients are just are talking about how it's changed their lives, how they're able to face death like they never have, how they're able to open up conversations with their family that they would never dream of having. And so Shulgin is quite upset about this. Um, and it's kind of sad because this, this of course, fast-tracked all of the banning, you know, the hysteria that we talked about in the rave episode and episode two of this series, and just the fear-mongering about ecstasy in general, when the reality is that the majority of these pills were not pure MDMA. And in fact, there is evidence out there that the government was actually, um, you know, putting DXM or, you know, injecting DXM in the MDMA supply or the ecstasy supply to just kind of facilitate this fear mongering and make it seem more dangerous than it was. Or at the very least, create so much disinformation and, and fear mongering about MDMA itself that it actually probably cost people their lives because they made it seem like MDMA was dangerous, you know? And so mm -hmm. people, even people's families, you know, who had who had kids that died from an overdose at a drug at a rave might still to this day think that their child overdosed on ecstasy based on the government just simply lying at the, you know, again, at the expense of public health. So that's what the DA does. They still do it. And, but they did it much worse even and more brazenly back then. I mean, just the way that they, you know, uh, I mean, yeah, by basically straight out saying that MDMA caused brain damage. I mean, that was what right. they leaned on. Right. Right. Yeah, and it's very sad. I mean, I think that it, it you, he's really honest in the book, of course, talking about his wife, his previous wife, I think her name was Helen, and how she suffered a stroke randomly and she was always averse to taking psychedelics and then just randomly one day after having the stroke she was like okay I'm ready to take mescaline and he was just totally present ready to to you know administer it and put her in a really safe setting and had this really emotional beautiful day where they're overlooking the bay area and she has this really spiritual experience and um, and he just goes through like these really intense experiences like unlocking people's repressed memories. Like he, he talks about this one experience. I forget if it was like a research student or just a friend who all of a sudden she was on one of these analogs and she just started like thinking that she was paralyzed. And she was just like, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And he was just like, what? He was like, you're not 
going to die. Like, talk to me. What is happening? And like, within a couple of minutes, she basically admitted that she suffocated her mother to death with her father because her mother had terminal um, cancer and was like in so much pain that they actually like suffocated her with a pillow Holy and she had shit. completely repressed it. And so like, it just, it, Shulgin just talks about how these things have like completely, like you unlock huge archives of your life that have been repressed, including in his own life. Um, and, you know, he talks about meeting, and then of course, a year later, his wife dies. And so he talks about how prescient it was that she was ready to take mescaline. And then she, you know, drops dead of, I guess, an embolism or something that just happened totally randomly. And he was riddled with guilt because they were already becoming kind of distant from each other. And then uh, I think a year later, he meets Anne, his wife that became his partner in all of the psychedelic research and who writes half of PCAL and who in all of these interviews, it's very cute because he kind of cedes to her um, and she interrupts him a lot to kind of like bring him back to reality if he's getting too esoteric with his like chemistry knowledge. <laughs> you know, she's like there in the background, just like chain smoking. She's just like, no, that's not, you know, let's explain what this really means. And like, it's just really cute because he's always just like, I don't know, like, what do you think, Anne? It's just a really cute relationship, a very give and take, very mutual respect coming from them. And, you know, she was a divorced mother of four and she had only tried mescaline or I guess peyote and was just so moved and so new about Sasha. And so she was really eager to, to trip again. And, um, and then they decided to do MDMA together and the rest is history. They completely fell in love and began to collaborate deeply together. What happens is it's like hair on your neck stands up a little bit. Ooh, something's going on. Is that little aura of, of beginning effect. Once I have found what I believe is the active level, then Anne joins me in an experiment to confirm that it's not me that's strange, but it's the compound it has the same action in both of us to some extent. And once that has been confirmed, then our research group will meet with the compounds about uh, maybe eight or maybe 10 people, and we'll share the compound all around. He is a little bit more sensitive, so often he'll take a little bit less. He's a little bit in the refractory, maybe a little bit more. And we'll get a, we'll get a feel of the whole group, and the group all confirms the activity. You've answered the question. What's curious, Robbie, is they must have been close to DEA agents at the time. I mean, I know that this wasn't scheduled when they were initially experimenting with this, but what's funny is that a DEA agent married them in 1981. So um, I'm not sure how that worked or if he, I guess he was maybe always close with people in the agency having, you know, given his like chemistry background. He had a DEA license to be mm. able to basically work with scheduled substances in his own lab up until the publishing of TCAL. I mean, the relationship probably was still okay for many years. Like even, you know, even though he was the godfather of MDMA, and still advocated for it. He wasn't pro the way it, you know, went into the streets and became associated with partying. So maybe in some ways there was people in the DEA who didn't see him as responsible for that. Or I don't, I mean, it, it is weird when you get really into the weeds of like how, how this all work. Sorry for the slightly awkward break here as we wrap part five of our ongoing mini series about psychedelics. In the next episode, Part six, we pick up continuing this conversation, trying to understand and process mentally how one of the most seemingly revolutionary figures in the modern psychedelic era had such a close relationship with the DEA. 
So please make sure to check out part six, which should already be accessible now. But I also wanted to leave you guys with this, I guess you could call it a disclaimer, about if you are interested in the subject of extracting DMT, please, I implore you, do not repeat anything that I talked about in this podcast. And if you go against my advice and do want to repeat it, which I am very much telling you not to right now, make sure you have at least some chemistry knowledge besides just taking a college course or to have some kind of certification or deep knowledge of chemistry before trying something. You are dealing with caustic chemicals, dangerous chemicals, and it's also illegal. So unfortunately in this country, we still have a really stupid drug war where DMT is scheduled and extracting plant material that contains DMT with the intent of extracting DMT, which is a schedule one substance, is illegal in the United States and it is a felony. So just remember that. As fun as it seems to live in somewhere like California where psychedelics are decriminalized on the level of possessing plant material, like now you can go buy mushrooms at a quote-unquote church in Oakland, pretty much anywhere outside here, um, it's a serious offense to possess psilocybin mushrooms. And it's usually a felony in almost anywhere else you go. LSD is still a felony here in Oakland. There's no decriminalization of that. Again, because of the fixation over plant-based, you know, plants being somehow superior or, or less harmful to you than pure chemicals. Even though pretty much all of the pure chemical psychedelics we've talked about that don't have natural or naturally occurring sources that we know of are very innocuous and for the overwhelming majority are non-toxic but just keep in mind that these are still illegal acts um i can talk about this stuff in the sense that you know i'm not doing anything illegal now in this regard wink wink um but as always please consider becoming a patreon subscriber to media roots radio if you're not already a subscriber this gives you access to one exclusive premium bonus episode per month. Um, if you're wondering if it's just some kind of tacked on, added on thing that's half-assed, no, it's sometimes some of our best content, depending on which month you listen. One of our Psychedelics episodes as part of this mini-series was actually a premium episode in last month's Media Roots Radio. So go to patreon.com slash media roots radio consider signing up for five dollars a month or per creation and it gives you immediate access to over a hundred hours of exclusive content you can't get anywhere else thanks a lot everybody take care